welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation, and many more. Today's guest is Dr. David Bolden. He is Director General of ISIMOD, International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, an intergovernmental organization dedicated to the mountains and the people of the Hindu Kush Himalayan region. He has been instrumental in the development of the Hindu Kush Himalayan Assessment, an IPCC-like assessment that lays out policy options for sustainable development in the region. He is now formulating the HKS Science Policy Forum to bring countries together to jointly address issues of mountain environments, livelihoods, and regional cooperation. I'm Kizi Manyan, and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Dr. Molden. Thank you so very much for coming on our show. We're honored to have you with us. I'm going to get started by asking you this. What was your starting point on your climate change journey? Yeah, thank you very much, Kirti. And I can say that ever since I remember, I've always had a concern for the environment. But one turning point in my journey with climate change was that movie Inconvenient Truth in 2006, the one Al Gore did where he was showing the possible impacts on climate change and how people like to ignore it because it's not a pleasant thing that's about to happen. It's a long-term thing. And that turned me on as far as climate change. Following that up in the journey, there was a series of things. And one of them was the IPCC report, number four, that came out in 2007. And basically, it was telling us that people were the cause of climate change. It was not a natural phenomenon, but very much our human behavior was driving this climate change. Then it was really joining ISIMODE, and that was in late 2011, where I stepped right into the hotspot of climate change, right? The Hindu Kush Himalaya region. The climate change is front and center of our discussion. And in fact, my whole time at ISIMODE has been totally immersed with climate change issue. And as we know, the Hindu Kush Himalaya are right on the front line of that discussion. By the way, for ISIMOD, the fourth assessment report of IPCC in 2007 was a, a door opener for ISIMOD's involvement in climate change. And what had happened was there was a mistake in the report on what's happening to glaciers, right? And the impact on water systems. And that controversy actually did result in people asking the questions, what's happening to the glaciers in the mountains and what does it mean? And that really changed the ISIMOD's work on climate change. And now we have a lot of work on both the science and application in that area. We're just one last thing about the Hindu Kush Himalaya region. It's a place of extreme beauty. It has wonderful cultures, uh, fantastic biodiversity, and it's the water tower of Asia, but now is under threat. And yes, there are a range of challenges, poverty, out-migration, gender inequality, ecosystem degradation. And if we're looking at these mountains, it's like taking the pulse of the planet. And how well we do with humanity, you can see it here. You know, you take the pulse of our mountains here, and that tells you the pulse of how well we're doing as humanity. So that has been my journey, and I'm very much fully into this issue now. 
So you call the Hindukush Himalayan region the pulse of what is happening globally. So what do you think are the key issues in terms of climate change that the area is facing? Can you tell us more about that, please? Yes, certainly. And there is a recently released report that you can find on our ISIMOD website, the Hindu Himalayan Assessment. This has a fantastic, very digestible reading of what's happening with climate change. And the story I'll give very much follows that. It's just a little background, right? And if we go back to the UN Convention on Climate Change, in Paris a few years ago, there was a landmark agreement that said the world needs to keep global warming well below two degrees and ideally at 1.5 degrees from pre-industrial temperatures on Earth. And that was a very important agreement and something quite relevant to mountains. And if we think about it for that 1.5 degree world, right, we would have to reduce our carbon emissions drastically and probably even employ technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And similarly, a two degree world, we really need fast action and we really should not go above two degrees. But the fact is, with our current practices, we keep emitting more and more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And in fact, our present uh, global trajectory of emissions is indeed quite alarming. But then the question, what does that mean for mountains, right? And one thing is that temperatures rise faster at higher elevation. We call that temperature amplification at elevation. So if we could reach globally a 1.5 degree world, right, where the average temperature increase globally was 1.5, it would mean the mountain areas would see a two degree rise in temperature. It gets hotter at higher elevations. If we could reach a two degree world, it would mean 2.5 degrees in mountains. But again, at this present emission trajectory, right, what the world is doing with our carbon emissions, we would see the mountain areas go over five degrees, which is really unimaginable. And this has lots of implications. So for example, in a 1.5 degree world, we would lose one third of our glaciers in the mountains. If it's a two degree world, we'll lose half. And if it's on the present emission trajectories, our present habits, we'll lose two-thirds of our glaciers by 2100. And that's one thing to lose your glaciers, but think about the water resources involved. One issue that's also important for mountains is the role of air pollution, right? And, And I'm looking out my window today and seeing a very hazy sky. But this air pollution also raises temperatures and has an impact on climate change. We have to take care of that. And we also see that snow and rainfall patterns are changing. We see less snow on mountains and snow quickly turning into runoff into river systems. And we also know that climate change will have an impact on our monsoons. Actually, one interesting part is that climate models actually show more rain in the future. That might look good but not necessarily so because what it's also telling us, we'll get more intense rainfall events, a lot of rain coming down in brief periods of time and more drought events. 
the issues for mountain environment and people are, are substantial. This will have an impact on day-to-day life of mountain people. Think about agricultural changes. You know, we hear stories of people growing apples higher and higher elevation. The ecosystem change. It probably means we'll get more disease vectors like mosquitoes moving up to higher elevation. And please recall, you know, just a year ago, we had that dengue scare, which is almost unheard of. We also know that the poor people and the most vulnerable always tend to get hardest in these kind of crises. But a big impact will be on water resources. And one is we're already seeing these major flood events and droughts. It will have an impact on agriculture and If crops are destroyed, I remember the onion crop getting destroyed by floods, the price of onion goes up as well. And we know when people lose their water sources that hit by a flood, that's a whole reason for adaptation. You know, we can just go on with the implications. But one last point is we have 10 big river basins coming off our mountains, Indus, Ganges, Brahmaputra, Yellow Yangtze River, and five more. And about 1.9 billion people, a quarter of humanity, lives in those river basins. And one way or the other, feel some kind of impact of this in the future. All of what you said seems to suggest that it's only going to get worse unless all of us come together and control what is actually happening in the planet right now. That's absolutely true, right? We need to respond. We need the quick action on this. Having said that, you are the Director General of ISIMOD, which is the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development in Nepal. What kind of role is your organization playing? And you mentioned the Hindu Kush Himalayan assessment. Can you tell us more about that as well, please? Yeah, sure. So just a little bit to start with is ISIMOD was founded 36 years ago. It's a unique organization in that it's actually owned by eight countries who share the mountains, right? That's, of course, Nepal, but also Bhutan, India, China, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Myanmar, and and Bangladesh, right? Who share a similar ecosystem. And I think the mission or the vision that people had 36 years ago is more relevant today than ever. And the idea was to shed light what's happening in mountains 36 years ago and to get countries to work together on that. So. What ISIMA had done, it's very much intergovernmental organization. It's a knowledge organization where we generate and share knowledge. So, for example, we have glaciologists going up to glaciers, but we also work with others to share knowledge what's happening with glaciers and mountains. We like to work closely with governments as well as practitioners like NGOs and to influence the policy and practice. We like to test solutions. We're not really an implementing organization, but what we do like is to try different things out, then work with uh, different governments or implementing agencies like UN or even NGOs to make sure they get scaled out. And for us, partnerships are quite important. Specifically to climate change, what ISIMOD does is we try to gather scientific evidence on what's happening in the Hindu Kush Himalaya. That's with glaciers, it's water, but it's also quite interesting because there's a lot of social science dimensions in there. Migration 
is there a difference between these impacts on men and women? We try to develop solutions on how to adapt to climate change, say with climate smart practices. We work with brick kiln owners to bring in cleaner technologies, bringing ideas in energy sector as well. And importantly, we are very much connected with governments and policymakers in our region. But one really big important role for ISIMUD is to get this message of our mountains onto the global stage. And we're in observers in various global UN processes and very much actively engaged there. Now, you had asked about this uh, Hindu Kush assessment report. This report, actually, ever since I've been at ISIMUD, we've been working on this. But the idea was what we saw first, the recognition that there was not so much science into the mountains, right? Or what if there was science, it was scattered. So University A or has some information, government B. So to fill this knowledge gap, could we just bring people together and see what knowledge we have? So the second part of it was to make sure that we're answering uh, policy type questions like what's happening to the water resources and what can we do about it? What about migration in the region and the, its link with climate change and, and issues about sustainable development? So the idea on the assessment, at first we were talking to policymakers to scope out what the assessment should look like. Then we reached out to a range of, especially researchers and practitioners from our eight countries and beyond to both write the report and then to review the report. So say over 300 people were involved in drafting this report that's very much policy-oriented. Now, it came out about February last year, and it has very succinct key messages. It's very much science-based. It had a very rigorous peer review process, but it certainly got the attention of the global media and global policymakers and has actually... I believe, been an important step to get the Hindu Kush Himalayan issues more into the region, thinking into the politics here, but as well as that on the global stage. Do you see the assessment kind of feeding into future policy? Absolutely. That's the intention, and that's what we're, we're working hard to do. So actually, what I'm really excited about these days is kind of the follow-up to that assessment report. And what we're developing is, say, a call to action, right? What are we going to do about it? right? And so we've actually gone to our eight different countries and had consultation meetings there and have developed a call to action. And I can come to that perhaps at the end. You know, what are big actions we have to take? But the second part is, can we get the governments in this region, right? And that includes, yes, Nepal, Bhutan, but it also includes China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and others. Can we work with governments to join hands to have a joint voice at these global events about what's happening to the mountains? That's where the, the power is going to, going to come, as if these governments agreed to say something together on the impact of climate change on mountains in the region. So we have been working together with governments on this, and and that's one area we'd like to see move forward. 
then certainly at the last COP25, that there was good attention brought to the assessment report. The government of Nepal was planning, unfortunately got delayed because of this COVID-19 crisis, but a Sagarmata Sambad to a global event. And certainly the messages would feed into that as well. But it's very important that we all join hands on this, and including public, the media. Let's get everybody together to tell that message about the mountains. I truly hope that succeeds. Can you give us some specific examples on the impact SMR has had in dealing with the current climate crisis? Sure. One is that just the getting science out into policy in the public domain, like that assessment report has been, been able to do. So it's really important to get good evidence into policy thinking. And you can see that working with, say, governments of Pakistan and Bangladesh, for example, as well as Nepal. But some of the really heartwarming stories are how do communities respond to climate change in our work with communities? And just a few stories. One of the impacts of climate change are floods, right? A lot of these are flash floods, not necessarily in the big rivers, but I was talking about this really intense rainfall event that can easily cause floods. A lot of times in the small rivers, say coming from the Siwaliks or the hills. And what we did is we've been working with communities on early warning systems. And so basically the idea was to build a gadget and we worked with a Nepal company, Real-Time Solutions, to build this gadget where when the water level goes up, a siren rings, right? And then basically the community can get to high ground quickly because a lot of times these floods develop in just a matter of hours. And if you can even give a half hour or one hour, it can really save lives and properties of communities. So we tried one out in Assam right next to the foothills of Arunachal Pradesh. And the key was to work with communities, in particular, the women in the communities. And it was quite something to see the woman getting the signal from this device, then calling up people downstream saying, hey, a flood is coming, as well as calling up the government, right, and giving a warning. So it worked. And I remember some people telling, uh, wow, we can finally sleep at night because of this. Otherwise, they're pretty afraid. Just to go on a little bit, then we tried that out in other countries, Nepal, India, and actually tried it out in the mountains of, of Pakistan as well. And it's worked in all those places. The technology looks a little different in each situation. And one event happened. We had set this up on near the Indian Nepal border, And the Indian community came up to the Nepal community and actually it was more the women coming and asking the women, hey, if you know the flood is coming, can you please call us in India? And indeed, the flood came shortly after my visit there. And the, the Nepal community called up the Indians to get ready. And they had like several hours to prepare for the flood. To me, that was something that I feel good about, I feel proud about from Isimut. I, I can tell a few other stories if, if you like. There's a few other good ones. Yes, please. Maybe a, a couple more would be great. Yeah. So the other similar story, we work a lot 
if agriculture is changing because it's warming up or there are changes in rainfall or monsoon patterns, how do farmers adapt, right? What kind of technologies do they need? We call this climate smart agriculture. So for example, uh, rainwater harvesting or actually this organic fertilizer called Jolmol has been quite interesting or better soil practice, soil management practices and actually higher valued products. So that's worked really well. And we do work with the government of Nepal to get that scaled out to more and more villages based on the trial. We're lucky we get to go work also like in the mountains in Pakistan, absolutely gorgeous, wonderful place, very dry area. The mountain people in Gilgit, Baltistan, get their water directly from glaciers to irrigate these orchards of, say, walnuts, almonds, uh, apricots. And what has happened is the glaciers retreat. And as they retreat, the villagers lose their water source, right? And they might have to build a canal up higher. And ultimately, it's just too hard, cost too much money to capture the water from the glaciers. And it doesn't rain so much. So it's really threatening the livelihoods there. So what we tried to do is say, okay, can we try an alternate water source? So we've been testing out uh, pumping up water with solar water pumps or what we call a hydraulic ram pump in the region. And I went up there to northern areas of Pakistan recently. It was quite interesting. There was a lot of lessons learned, but also some of that was working pretty well. So just a different approach. And as well, people were having very much trouble with what we call glacier lake outburst floods and cloudburst floods. And these flood early warning systems were working fine up there too. So that's another story. I do want to, I'll tell one more because I think it's relevant, especially here in Nepal. You know, I mentioned the impact of air pollution on climate change. Of course, it has other impacts on health uh, and agriculture as well. And something that we cannot blame the globe on, it's happening locally that we're getting so much air pollution. And after the earthquake, you know, a lot of the brick kilns were broken, the chimneys fell down, and there was a real chance to rebuild back better. And we had work with our partners on a simple technology, what we call zigzag technology, that uses less energy. And in addition to that, releases less black carbon into the atmosphere. And the brick quality is better and they get a better price for bricks. And actually, a lot of the brick kilns in Kathmandu Valley and in the Terai have changed because of that. And we have a Brick Kiln Homes Federation looking at this issue as well. There's a lot more work to do in this area, but it's been quite remarkable and something that I'm happy about as well. I love the fact that all of these are such uh, simple things that can be done to actually help the community become more sustainable, become more aware, and actually help them, especially when, when there are things like flash floods happening. So I do love these examples. Moving away from what your organization does, can I specifically check into what policies Nepali government has about climate change? Sure. Actually, the Nepal government's been quite active in the policy front for quite some years. 2010, they had a national adaptation program of action, NAPA, 
and all these have acronyms, right? The 2011, there is a climate change policy. Nepal has been uh, right at the forefront in spearheading uh, local adaptation plans for action, or LAPAs. And more recently, Nepal has uh, put together a national adaptation plan in 2019. Now, what in addition, what kind of in line with the global community, every country has what they call nationally determined contributions or NDCs, basically a plan on what each country is going to do to combat uh, climate change as well. And I, I can also say that Nepal is a very active member in this, the UNFCCC Convention of Parties or COP meetings. And last year, it was really inspiring to see how like Nepal and Bhutan got together and tried to advocate for mountain issues. And I know Nepal's actually been uh, very much involved in the least developed country, the LDC group in these meetings. On the policy front, uh, there's a lot going on. And I, from my perspective, I, I think Nepal is very active in this area. That sounds great. Do you have any special expectations from uh, COP26 whenever it happens in the near future? Yeah, we really do. Uh, first, while it's delayed, it's really important. Of course, our expectation is more action will be taken globally. But one subset and something important for us is to get more recognition of mountains, more recognition of the Hindu Kush Himalaya region into the agenda. You know, if you think about island states, they get a lot of recognition. And what we'd like is more recognition for mountains. This is important because what we do need is more action, both on mitigation as well as adaptation. Mitigation, meaning reducing the greenhouse gases from cleaner energy, but also adaptation. You know, if climate change is going to happen, how do people adapt? Much like the stories I was telling above. But there's just one comment that I, I find interesting. You know, now we have this COVID crisis and it's interesting. People did take action, right? Sometimes you might say it was a little too slow. You know, we should have started a month earlier. And it does show that people can t take action. And the question is, could we learn some lessons from this and start taking action on this climate crisis, maybe the COVID one happens suddenly, the climate one happens over a longer period of time, and that's the difference. But maybe we can come out of this crisis and really go into COP26 with new resolve to be prepared so that when we start feeling these effects, we, we're ready for them. So that would be my hope as well. And what kind of... Uh climate change narrative is actually being presented by the media to people in the region. And do you think there needs to be change? I do think the media in this region, you know, the South Asia, China, is actually quite good about presenting climate change issues and solutions. I mean, it's a pleasure to work with the media here. And the issue is how, how do you get those stories to be more appealing and so that people can take action? But there is a, a narrative that I really do think needs to be changed. And the narrative is something like this. 
is that mountain people or people in developing Asia emit very little greenhouse gases, in essence, are the victims of climate change. Therefore, we need support, right? And we need to develop so we will take care of our climate change issues later because we need development first. So that kind of narrative is out there. You know, in some ways, it's very true that mountain people emit very little and are certainly victims of climate change. But I think it, there can be a much more helpful narrative that is something like this. In spite of mountain people bearing the brunt of climate change, we're actually doing something about it. And please join us in our fight against climate change. And actually, Bhutan is is good at this, right? So they say, hey, we're a small country. We're already carbon positive. We're sucking in more carbon than we're emitting. But we can't do it alone. We need your help. And I think that's a, an argument that in a way captures a moral high ground and really is a call to action to the global communities, right? And then you can tell we're doing things. We're putting in sustainable green technology we're putting in our nature-based solutions in mountains. We're helping mountain communities are putting their own resources into building resilience. What are you doing? That would be the kind of change in narrative that I would love to see. Has uh, informed climate activism become a thing in the region? Are climate strikes essential to make people listen? And do you feel this kind of activism actually has an impact? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. First, I like the word of informed activism to make sure we're activists, but really based on science, it is important. I mean, look, Greta Thunberg is, she's extremely effective. She's uh, certainly a hero in my view. She's getting young people together. Certainly does make a difference and more people will listen. There's a growing activism in this region as well. I'm hoping that there are more people who do raise their, their voices. One thing I, I do notice is that we also have to be careful that we're not so divisive on this, right? That we are trying to bring people together on it. So a lot of times you'll see very divisive, say in US where there's the climate changes not worth thinking about versus the climate change activists and the two parties don't talk to each other. So I hope that we can do this in a way that draw attention, also promote dialogue and discussion based on facts and good science. Right. And how do we look at tackling climate change? Are small leads helpful or is governmental and regional policy the only way forward? Government and regional policies are definitely important. They're critical. They set the stage for large-scale actions and set an enabling environment. But I'm also a firm believer that individual actions can make a huge difference. Each action might be small compared to the global context, but it combined can make a big difference. And again, if we start doing things ourselves, right? Turning off the lights, uh, watching what diets you have, don't waste too much. We can also influence others in this. And I think also we can tell the governments that this is what we want to do, right? As people, this is important for us people if we get behind it. And it's that 
connectedness between people then and governments that will make a difference. So I, I do feel our actions are hugely important. And perhaps, again, looking at yourself first before blaming it on a government is a good thing. You know, don't burn your garbage. Yes, perhaps pay a little bit more for green technology that might be cheaper in the long run, for example, installing solar energy. These are all good things that individuals can do. I hope we can all do something in this fight. And last question, what does the future look like for the people of the Hindu Kush region? So this was explored in this assessment report as well. And it's not the future is ingrained there. Depending on the actions we take now, we can see different futures, right? And on the negative side, right, if we don't handle climate change, if we don't handle disaster, we can really run downhill, right? We can actually see economies collapse. We don't want that. What we do now is somehow we muddle our way through, right? Somehow we get by day to day, but we're still not advancing very fast. And what we really want is a future that's different, I think. And I think that's a shared vision. And our vision put forward in this for the HKH in this assessment report, and remember a lot of people are taking place putting together this vision, is that we do want a prosperous, healthy, and peaceful and poverty-free mountains. We'd like to have food, energy, and environmental security and be climate and disaster resilient. The key is, you know, that prosperous Hindu Kush Himalaya is what you need to have in your mind at all time. We need to be dreaming about that. We need to be a, dreaming about a climate resilient world and have that as our goal. Now, if I can add one last thing on that, that's also coming from this call to action, right? Yep. How do we get to that prosperous world? How do we get to the healthy, peaceful world we want? We feel there are six urgent actions. And again, this is coming, going country by country. So there is agreement around it. The first is to cooperate, to work together. And in this region, it means the eight countries working together that share the Hindu Kush Himalaya, but also the globe has to cooperate as well and individuals. Second, we really have to strive for a world that where global warming is less than two degrees. So that means we really have to get our messages out because it can be disastrous for mountains if we don't do that. Third is the mountain situation, and Nepalis know this, is, is unique, right? Our challenges are different, say with landslides or mountain agriculture or getting water. The solutions for the mountains are different from the plains. And also we have many different cultures with many different kinds of solution. We need to recognize that diversity and uniqueness of mountain people and incorporate that in our broader solution sets. The fourth action is we have our sustainable development goals, yet we still have one third of the people under poverty lines in our mountains. We have 50% malnutrition. We have to achieve the sustainable development goals. And the fifth is what's special about mountains are the fantastic mountain ecosystems that provide important services to people, water, energy, 
food biodiversity, and we have to enhance those services. And the sixth urgent action is really to share information and knowledge, right? With that information and knowledge is power to deal with the future. And we just have to be better at generating and sharing that knowledge moving forward. So those were some of the actions we feel are quite important now for Nepal, for the region and the globe. I really enjoyed listening to what your vision is for what's going to happen. And all the actions sound urgent and things that should be looked at and should be done, actually. Thank you so much for talking with us. We've learned so much about what's happening in the HKH region as well. And I really hope that all of what you've asked for and, and wish for comes true. Thank you. Me too, Kirti. Let's work together on it. <laughs> Absolutely, Dr. Mullen.